This is episode 40 of Cinescope, and if you were the inventors of Facebook, you'd have invented Facebook. Welcome to Cinescope, where our goal is not to criticize or to assign ratings, but rather to celebrate the movies we love, exploring story, characters, music, and relevance to the world around us. I'm your host, Chad Hopkins, and joining me today is Adam Chitwood to talk about one of our favorite films, The Social Network. Adam, how are you doing tonight? I'm doing all right. How are you? I'm doing well, and I'm excited to have you on the show because you're a fellow podcaster and you're from an entertainment website. And how about you tell us about that and who you are and anything else you want to share? Yeah, I'm the deputy editor for Collider.com, which is a film and TV news website primarily, but we run interviews, reviews, original features. Every once in a while, we'll break casting scoops or stuff like that. We have tons of video shows from the video side, so kind of a grab bag for movie fans over there. Uh, I also co-host the Collider podcast with uh, our film editor, Matt Goldberg, so... uh, yeah, any and everything movie and movie news related, that's what I'm up to. Awesome. Yeah, we had Dave Trumbor on back when Lego Batman movie came out, and we talked about that, and we talked about the Lego movie together. Nice. And had a good time. So we've got another Collider person here to talk more movies, and I've got to say, you picked a movie without any prompting from me, a movie that I've been wanting to talk about for a while now. So I- I'm looking forward to this episode for sure. Nice. Before we do get into the episode, I just want to announce to everybody, I'm going to be starting a giveaway for Cinescope, and the announcement for that, the official details and all that kind of stuff is going to come towards the end of the episode, so make sure to stick around after the show, and you will hear all the details for that. So, that being said, Adam, are you ready to talk about The Social Network? I am. Great. So this movie came out on October 1st of 2010 and was directed by David Fincher, who also directed Alien 3, 7, The Game, Fight Club, Panic Room, Zodiac, The Curious Case of Benjamin Button, The Girl with the Dragon Tattoo, and Gone Girl, and recently announced as the director of World War Z 2, so we'll see what happens with that. The script was written by Aaron Sorkin, but was based on the book The Accidental Billionaires by Ben Mesrich. And the score was by first-time composer and Nine Inch Nails alum Trent Reznor, along with Atticus Ross, who as a duo have continued to compose for Fincher in The Girl with the Dragon Tattoo, Gone Girl, and in Leonardo DiCaprio's global warming documentary, I believe, Before the Flood, and then most recently, Patriot's Day. The movie stars Jesse Eisenberg, Andrew Garfield, Justin Timberlake, Army Hammer, Max Minghella, Josh Pence, John Getz, Brenda Song, and Rooney Mara. So Adam, how we start this off, I'd love to hear what your first experience with this movie was. Do you remember what your reaction was or any lead up to it? Anything like that? Yeah, I mean, I was in college and I, I mean, I've been a, a massive David Fincher fan for all my life and I'm almost as big a Fincher fan as I am an Aaron Sorkin fan, so this is one I was really looking forward to for a long time, and I know that when the word first came out they were making a Facebook movie, I was super excited about it because Sorkin was writing it and then Fincher was directing it, and so there was trepidation on the parts of a lot of people, but I think that first trailer kind of qualmed a lot of fears. It really set the tone going forward. So yeah, my my first experience with it, I went with a couple of friends of mine. I think it was back home for whatever reason. So it was friends of mine from high school and we all kind of loved David Fincher. So we went and saw it and 
Yeah, I loved it. I, I am still astounded by it to this day. My reaction hasn't changed at all. I mean, I, I was over the moon for it. I, I felt like it was a great film about that time and about this time. And, and I feel like it's had some really great staying power over the years. And it's a film that I find endlessly rewatchable. I, I just think it's so entertaining and so well-written and so well-directed. The craftsmanship on it is really impeccable. So, yeah, I, my first experience, I loved it and hasn't really changed. Cool. For me, I'm sort of the opposite. I, I don't think I had any previous experience with David Fincher or, for that matter, with Aaron Sorkin. I was fresh out of high school. This was my first semester of college when this movie came out. And in fact, I don't remember a lot of the lead up to this movie either. I just sort of remember a, around award season the next year, there was all this buzz about this awesome Facebook movie. And I, I was fascinated. And so I, I don't remember if I picked it up before or after the Oscars. I want to say before that year. And I picked it up on Blu-ray. And that was my first time watching it was on this tiny little dorm room TV on Blu-ray. And while I wish I had seen this in the theater, I think that one of the strengths of this movie is that it doesn't require a big cinematic viewing experience to be entertaining. It's very dialogue and character driven. And yes, a, a bigger screen would have helped, but I was just as engrossed from the start of the film as I would have been in the theater, I think. And I didn't really have any experience with any of these actors at this point either. You know, I, I've always been a fan of movies, but I didn't start exploring them a little bit further and more in depth until I was in college. So this was me on the beginning of my extensive movie journey. And so I didn't know Jesse Eisenberg. Andrew Garfield was still sort of new on the, the movie scene, at least. So that means I, I largely went into this movie pretty fresh on all counts. And I've said it before on the show. That's always one of my favorite ways to see a movie is when I really don't know anything about it except, hey, it's the Facebook movie. And that was all the, the labeling I needed for it. And I've, I've got to echo everything that you were saying about the actual quality of the movie. I was engrossed from the start. The dialogue is snappy and fast paced and it, it, it's almost dizzying at points. But that's never a thing that I would discount against it. it it's just an endlessly entertaining movie. And I, I loved it from the beginning and I've loved it more and more and more every time I've watched it. And including, I actually read the book accidental billionaires by Ben Mesrich and it is a great book as well. Now I, I think we should maybe get this out of the way at the start of the episode. This isn't exactly a 100% factual movie, nor is the book 100% factual, but that didn't really matter to me at least because it's, it's, just a good story and it's something to follow and sort of a mythology behind this piece of technology that we've used every day for years. Yeah, I think, uh, and I had been a Sorkin fan for a really long time. The West Wing is my favorite TV show of all time. And he admitted up front that he was not tech savvy, didn't know anything about technology, like didn't know really what Facebook was when he signed on to write this movie. And I think that's why it's so great is because it's really not about Facebook. It's about these people, it's this almost Machiavellian tale as old as time about friendship and power and relationships and how those evolve and change with the growth of power. And I think that that's one of the reasons that the film lasts, has had this staying power, because it if it was too wrapped up in the tech of Facebook or Facebook itself, it would be dated by like 2011, 2012, when the next update went through. But it's more about the characters and, and the people in the relationships and the interconnectivity there. And I think that's that's one of its greatest strengths. 
Yeah, they even sort of poke fun at that in the film itself when uh, Rashida Jones' character says something to the effect of, you know, I think 85% of these these personal close relationship cases is 85% exaggeration and then 15% perjury. So even within the film, you know, it's it's framed within these court cases, which I think is wonderful and beautifully done and a great way to sort of experience the, the forming of Facebook, yeah. as it were. and. They, they sort of get away with the exaggerated elements and with the elements that may not be so true within that framing device itself. It, it really is very cleverly done. Yeah, I mean, the the idea, and I know that Sorkin poured over the transcripts of the depositions because these cases never actually went to court. They settled before they went to court. They were depositions. And for him to latch on to this idea of, I'm going to tell the story of the invention of Facebook, but I'm also going to frame it with two separate depositions happening at the same time with some of the same characters, I thought was a brilliant choice because you're, you're setting up, you know, the birth of something exciting and you're cutting to love lost, you know, friends have become enemies. And ultimately we, the audience comes to the film with the knowledge that Mark Zuckerberg is a billionaire and has created this website that is now used the world over. And so I, th- I think it was kind of fascinating insight into his youth, maybe his naivete and those kind of things. Right. And thank you. That is an important distinction that it's depositions and not necessarily a court case, uh, but it is, you know, lawyers involved in these really intimate settings, which again, call back to, I think, Sorkin's playwright background, you know, like the original A Few Good Men play. It really does within each scene that you're watching feel like a play. And it's so very dialogue heavy and dialogue focused that I think this would actually be a pretty good stage production if somebody could pull it off with all the different locations and with the music. Yeah, and that's one of the things that Sorkin kind of gets knocked for sometime. And and he admits he is not a very imaginative writer. He is great at writing snappy dialogue. He has a lot of trouble with plot. And that's why I think this film is as good as it is because it's marrying Sorkin's dialogue and narrative structure with the impeccable visual acumen and aesthetic and direction of David Fincher, who is meticulous, a perfectionist, every frame, every shot, like everything, every single thing that's in every frame and every shot is handpicked and hand adjusted by Fincher to make sure that it is absolutely exactly right. And so it's the marriage of these two talents, I think, that that just kind of makes this melting pot of this perfect movie. And even in the very first scene, when you're in the bar with Erica and Mark and you've got the music in the background, everything just feels authentic in this movie. Everything feels so natural and almost as if you're there and it's actually happening. It doesn't feel like you're on a set and the 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 background is hushed so that you can hear the dialogue of the main characters. And there are a couple of moments in the movie, uh, namely at the bars, where you almost have to strain your ears a little bit or, or lean forward a little bit and pay just a little bit closer attention so that you can catch every line of dialogue. But again, I think that lends to the authenticity. Even if you, you do miss a line or two, that's not all that different than if you were there. And for that reason, this film really does benefit from rewatches because you're going to pick up some of those little snippets of dialogue that you might have missed thanks to volume here or there. You know, some people might see that as a negative, but again, I think that just adds to the the realness of the movie. Yeah, I think that's one of the great opening scenes in cinema history, and that was a very deliberate choice on Fincher's part to, through the sound design, really ramp up the background noise and the background action, which reinforces, I mean, not only is the background loud, but Mark is having three or four conversations at the at the same time with right. Rooney Mara's character. And so it's telling you, the viewer, 
this guy's brain is going a mile a minute and you have got to be paying attention or you're going to get lost. And it kind of puts you in the frame of mind of those around Mark Zuckerberg who are not as, you know, genius as him or in his head that are just trying to catch up and, and just trying to, to stay on his level. And man, this, this movie just moves. I, I listened to the audio commentary a few times now, and there's another scene at the club between Mark and um, Justin Timberlake's character where Fincher admitted that uh, he kept turning the background noise up and up and up, and, and eventually his sound editors were like, you've got to turn it down. We can't hear the dialogue. And Fincher was <laughs> like, I don't care. That That's so good. That, that That's another, that's the scene probably that people would point to as I couldn't understand a thing they were saying because it was too loud. And yeah. I, I love it for that reason. You've got Justin Timberlake shouting at the top of his lungs so that across the way, uh, Jesse Eisenberg can hear what he's saying. And it, it just, I hate repeating myself, but it feels so real. It feels like you're there. And I, I love being transported into the space with the characters. For sure. Are there any elements of the story that particularly stand out to you or or aspects of the filmmaking or favorite scenes or any of that kind of stuff? I mean, like I said, I think that opening scene is one of the great scenes in, in cinema history. I, I think on average, just I think any writer trying to make it in Hollywood, if they could write any scene in this movie as good as Sorkin writes it, I think they would, you know, die and go to heaven. I feel like there's not a kind of a wasted moment. So it's kind of hard to pick out a favorite because I feel like it's all... It all flows so well and and comes together so well. Even the montages themselves, which are usually pretty dull, I think Fincher executes those incredibly well. But the kind of the most exciting part of the movie is that opening dialogue scene, which like just leaves your jaw on the floor, which then segs into um, Mark walking across the campus alone, having been dumped with this very eerie, unsettling Hand Covers Bruise song that, or, or cue that Trent Reznor and Atticus Ross put together, which then segs into the montage of Mark drunkenly creating Facebook, which Fincher juxtaposes with the frat parties that are going on and, and the life that he is missing because he is uncool. Right, that that is a, a really fascinating montage. And the, I noticed that contrast in particular watching today, uh, where you are going back and forth between this guy drinking by himself, typing away on the computer, uh, blogging, not anonymously, but without a present audience. And then everybody else going out, enjoying their final clubs, these things that he's sort of aspiring to. And yet here he is locked by himself about to upset a large portion of the campus. Yeah. Now, one of my favorite shots in the movie is the shot at the very end of the film when uh, Eduardo is storming out of the office towards Mark uh, right before he smashes the laptop down. And I, I also watched through all the bonus scenes a, a few years back now, but that they had the camera on a trolley moving backwards. And that, that's just such a, a dynamic and exciting way to watch what is about to happen. You, you know that he's pissed off. He's already turned. He, you, he's seen that he knows Mark is there across the room. And so you know that he's about to dole out some justice but you don't exactly know what he's going to do and so having the camera pan back without mark knowing that he's coming and you just see all the emotion going around andrew garfield's face that that, that is one of my all-time favorite shots in any movie yeah i mean that's why you hired david venture to make this movie that anticipation is building and building and building and then he he pushes it with this dolly shot that is tremendous any other favorite story elements or filmmaking elements that you want to point out before we move on to character talk i'm a huge fan of jeff cronin with the cinematographer on this film he works 
on most of Fincher's movies nowadays, and I think it's all pretty spectacularly put together. It's hard to pick out a single favorite shot through all of them, but I mean, a lot of the stuff at the club is is pretty well crafted. I'm a big fan of of the, like I said, the montage, but just the framing of those shots of the frat parties and and the girls on the buses, just how that kind of puts it. It's unsettling. It, it's sexy and alluring but it's it kind of takes you aback it's it's framed in a really interesting way cool well let's go ahead and move on to our character discussion and the the best place to start is with our star so mark zuckerberg what do you have to say about mark as presented in the social network um i mean there's a reason jesse eisenberg got nominated for an oscar it's a it's a tremendous performance and the character of mark in this film is is really fascinating on the Blu-ray, on the special features, you can see they have a lot of the pre-production. There's a really great feature-length documentary about the, the making of the film. and You can watch a discussion between Aaron Sorkin and David Fincher where they're kind of fighting in a good way about what is this movie about. And in Sorkin's eyes, he's writing Mark Zuckerberg as a guy who is angry because this girl spurred him and because he is uncool, because he will never be cool. He will never be cool enough to get into those clubs. In Fincher's eyes, Mark is perturbed by the breakup and by the girls spurning him. But in his eyes, Mark is angry at the world for not being as smart as him. They'll never understand him. And I feel like that's a really... It's fascinating because the director and the, and the writer have slightly different takes on what is making the character tick. And then you put it in Jesse Eisenberg's hands and it takes on an entirely new life. And again, I think this melting pot of all of these brilliant craftspeople working together, bringing this character to life, I think all of that shines through. I think you can read it any of those ways, specifically the character of Mark. I think he, he's ultimately a, a tragic, I'm not sure if you call him an anti-hero, a, a tragic figure, I guess. You know, he is, as he's called in the film, he's a dick. Like, he's not a nice guy. And I think Rudy Mara punctuates it nicely with her final line in the in the opening of the film of how she kind of characterizes how he sees the world and you just kind of see that play throughout the film it's it's interesting because you kind of want to root for him but he makes it so hard for for you to want to root for him i think it's interesting that you use the word anti-hero because i had a drive home before i got home for this podcast and i was actually thinking you know mark sort of is the anti-hero of this movie maybe not in the exact definition of the word but he's a character who is the protagonist of the movie. It's about the forming of Facebook, which was done by Mark Zuckerberg. But he does make it so difficult to like him, and he, he makes some questionable choices. And ultimately, at the end of the movie, he has sort of, or not sort of, he has screwed over his formerly best friend. And so in that way, I think Mark is the, quote, anti-hero, but Eduardo is the, the guy that we do want to root for because throughout the whole film, he is trying to be the best friend he can and the best business partner he can for Mark. And yet he's the one at the end of the film who has had a whole lot taken away from him. Mark himself is sort of painted as retaliatory. You, you've got him being dumped by Erica, going home, starting this blog, and then comparing girls against each other. And then you've got, at the end of the film, you've got Eduardo's share diluted down, presumably because Eduardo shut down the the account that he had used to fund Facebook and almost ended the whole thing. So he's painted as retaliatory, but in, in my mind, it, he's not sports-minded, he's not athletic. And so his intellect and his words 
are how he defends himself and how he he tries to put up a face for people even though he is hurt he does have feelings and does experience pain when others put him down but that that that's the only way he can retaliate and so that's he comes across as a little bit of an a-hole and I, I think Jesse Eisenberg just this this is the best film I think I've seen Jesse Eisenberg in for sure. And it's just because he brings out all those different facets of the character. Yeah, and and I think he's hurt by Eduardo very early on when Eduardo is punched by the Phoenix Club and it, it's kind of this exclusion thing. And you can already see the jealousy, you know, rearing its head in those early scenes, and I think it just builds and builds and builds before he Ultimately, does something that it, it feels like, at least in the film, the character at least comes to regret somewhat by diluting these shares, by putting all of this in Sean Parker's hands, by allowing him to kind of go to town on Eduardo. He's kind of wiping his hands clean of it, but I he, he's still involved in it. He is. And the the way they frame those those moments when he is trying to show how disappointed he is in Eduardo's success it's established in the first scene. He wants to be a part of one of these final clubs. And then Eduardo gets punched shortly thereafter. And then in the scene at the Jewish fraternity where he first pitches Facebook to Eduardo, he that's where he also learns, hey, Eduardo got invited to join the Phoenix. And he says, maybe it's just a diversity thing. And by the end of the scene, as they're about to part ways, he says, yeah, it probably was a diversity thing. It's like he's trying to justify the the actions of the Phoenix punching Eduardo in order to make himself feel better. Yeah, it's definitely a diversity thing and not because Eduardo is better than me in any way. And again, you, you feel that watching Zuckerberg and watching Eisenberg's performance in the character. For sure. Now, Eduardo himself, again, he, I think, is the hero of this film because he does just want to be a good friend to Mark. He values his friendship. He, Even though he sort of takes a little bit of offense that you see to those those comments about his involvement with the, the final clubs, you also see, you know, I, I, I like this person. I see that he doesn't really have anybody else. And so I, I want to be there for him, even if he is a little rough around the edges. And he does everything in his power to make Facebook a success, to make it a financial success at that. And at the end of the film, he's betrayed. He he was attending to business the best way he knew how. This is something that he has funded from the very beginning, something he stood by Mark for from the very beginning. But he was left behind because of the way Mark, or rather Sean, saw fit to do things. Eduardo is a really fascinating character. Andy Garfield is an actor that I had been, I had seen in Never Let Me Go before I saw um, The Social Network, I think. I know those movies came out the same year. And he's phenomenal in this in this role. And it obviously was a sign of things to come, because he's gone on to do tremendous work in films like Silence and what have you. But yeah, Garfield gives uh, one of my favorite performances in the film here. I think he shows a whole lot in his eyes more than any other actor in this movie, where you can really see, in especially in that ending scene when he is confronting Mark about his shares being diluted, you see the, the, the sort of pain in his eyes at having been betrayed by a friend. Yeah, definitely. Now, what about Justin Timberlake as Sean? Because he was sort of a surprise for me. I hadn't seen him act in anything up to this point. He was just the the in-sync member from my childhood up until this point in my life. And now I think he's a pretty capable actor. He was a, a controversial choice to be sure, but I think David Fincher is one of the best. He has one of the best eyes for casting of any director working today. And I would say in any director in history, all of his his casting choices may seem odd at first, but always pan out. 
uh, tremendously, and that's certainly true of Timberlake here, who I heard works very hard to to get this role, and and he does a a fantastic job. He's bringing a bit of his persona and like what audiences are bringing with them to to Sean Parker because Sean is something of a celebrity in Mark's eyes, and and Mark becomes kind of enamored of him, and uh, I think Timberlake uses that to his advantage, but he really he he is so smooth in this role and lets uh, that Sorkin dialogue just kind of roll off his tongue. It's really fantastic. He's almost manipulative in a way. He he uses his cool factor and his sort of party savvy nature to convince Mark that he knows best. He's He's been through the, these business ventures that have ultimately failed on him and collapsed in on him. Whether he accomplished things with them or not, he... He is sort of a homewrecker when it comes to companies. Oh, it's clear that he's he's very leechy. Right. And he he doesn't get into Facebook because he believes in Mark. He gets into Facebook because he, he can see a great thing very early and from very far away and wants to get in on the ground floor. Right. But even beyond that, the worst part about it, I think, and especially to Eduardo Chagrin, is that Sean really does sort of know what he's doing. He, he ultimately leads to this deal with Peter Thiel that puts Facebook even more on the map than it was and takes it across continents and eventually leads them to their one millionth member. Yeah. And it, 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 it just sort of, you can see how it tortures Eduardo, who's busting his butt trying to get advertisers, where Sean Parker steps in, is living rent-free, and all of a sudden he's, he's doing these things for Facebook that he didn't sign off on, but were ultimately beneficial to Facebook as a company. But then his tendency to over-party and be a bit of a jerk it, it turns against Sean in the end, like it has with every single other business venture he had been on up to that point. And Timberlake is just so high energy and such a fun person that every time he's on the screen, I enjoy watching him. I would like to see him act more. I think he did. He did a really great job here. And, and I think he suffered from a similar problem as Army Hammer is that this is like one of his early acting roles, although he had been in a couple of comedies and stuff before. Working with Fincher is not like working with any other director Fincher is doing. 50, 60, 70, 80 takes and is so meticulous and, and it's hard to, you just don't get that with every director that you're working with and so you're kind of spoiled. Yeah, it, it is a shame he hasn't been in as much uh, since this movie, but hopefully one day we'll get another great Timberlake role uh, that he'll he'll really stand out and shine in. Yeah. Now what about the sort of joint characters of the Winklevi and Divya Narendra? I like Army Hammer a lot as an actor. I think he did really terrific work here. And Josh Pence as well, who, you know, in casting, it was down to Army Hammer and Josh Pence for the role of the Winklevoss twins. And Fincher, being the tech-savvy filmmaker that he is, wanted to use the same actor for both roles. But though he cast Army Hammer, he brought Josh Pence in to act as, you know, he played the scenes opposite him. So he was playing the other brother while Army Hammer was shooting the other side of the scene. And I think Army, again, using his physical manner and the way he comes off to his advantage in this film to play this character, I think, is is terrific. Fincher employed a number of different techniques so that audiences wouldn't kind of become savvy and start to realize the trick. Uh, I know to this day, there are people who think Army Hammer is twins, that he has <laughs> Right. Because there are some scenes where it's facial replacement. There are some scenes where... They just did a split, like they shot one side and then they shot the other side. And there are some scenes where it's Josh Pence. There's a scene where they're walking into their final club and that's Josh Pence. There's no CG or anything. It's just him walking. 
but yeah, I think Army Hammer does a, a great job. Max Minghella as well as Divya Narendra is really solid. He's probably the least integral of the supporting roles in the film. He still turns in a really great performance, but not particularly as memorable as uh, Army Hammer. Right. And the first scene we meet them, uh, at least the moment Mark meets them when they're in the, the porcelain in the bike room, it establishes them immediately as enemies to Mark. Because at the beginning of the movie, when he's with Erica, she makes a crack about men who row crew. And then they're talking about vinyl clubs. So here he is bumping into these twins and this other guy who two of them row crew. And we're having a meeting in the bike club of the the Porcelain. And so right off the bat, his attention is grabbed because these characters are sort of the opposite of him. He's not going to be in a final club. He's not going to ever row crew. So immediately you see that sort of disdain he has for this, these characters, even though in that scene he agrees to help them with Harvard Connection, Connect You, whatever you want to call it. You can already see that he's had enough of these guys and he actually turns Erica's dialogue from that first scene back on these characters where they make a crack about how this might help his reputation after the whole face mash snafu. And he says, really, you would do that for me. <laughs> and yeah. it, it really is an interesting thing to, we, they don't know that he's turning this dialogue back on them. We do because we're on the outside and we've seen both scenes, but it is, it's very masterful of Sorkin to take that dialogue from that first scene and spin it back around now that Mark has sort of looked back on it and reflected a little bit. Yeah, this is definitely um, not one of those movies that was like written while they were on set. There's a lot of reflexivity, um, plenty of callbacks to dialogue and scenes from earlier in the film. Are there any other characters that we might have mentioned that you'd want to point out? Um, not necessarily. I mean, I um, Rooney Mara makes an impression in the film, and it, I do remember that at the time that the social network was being released, and while it was doing going through its awards campaign, that's when Fincher was he had cast Rooney Mara in Dragon Tattoo because he was shooting Dragon Tattoo during the Oscar campaign for this. So that was another kind of interesting aspect of the film was to kind of get to see this person who may or may not be um, Lisbeth Salander in Fincher's Dragon Tattoo. Yeah, in her brief appearance in the movie, I really like her. I liked her in Girl with the Dragon Tattoo as well. She's a lot more simple here, a lot more plain. Sure. But I, I think even in those those shorter scenes, she, she does bring a lot to the film and you can really see how her presence and then her absence affected Mark. So great job to Rooney Mara. I also want to say that I, uh, Sorkin makes an appearance yeah. in the scene where Mark is sort of making the glottal stop as he calls it. And I'm trying to think if there are any other characters. I, I think that that's the, the main cast at least where it's very focused again, just like a stage play where uh, beyond these characters, there isn't a whole lot going on. Let's talk about the music, and I'm interested to hear your opinion because uh, I think you're the guy on Collider who often gets these composer interviews and does sort of film score lists and stuff like that. Am I right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I do. Um, I've kind of taken the lead on uh, composers and cinematographers and stuff like that. Great. So what what are your opinions of the score here by Trent Reznor and Atticus Ross? Oh, it's fantastic. I mean, it was groundbreaking at the time and deservedly won them an Oscar for it. I think it's just the right, I, I, it's hard to think of this movie with any other kind of music, like a, a more traditional, like orchestral score. I feel like the, the unsettling nature of Trent Reznor and Atticus Ross's score just really reinforces the themes of the film and the characters of the film and, and the, um, 
the broken trust and it just all the the film is about unsettling things and so the for the music itself to be unsettling i think is perfect yeah i this score surprised me a lot and i do think i heard the score before i saw the film so that would have placed all of this after february when the academy awards happened and at the time I was sort of upset because I was like, there was no way that this first time composing duo composing a non-traditional score had better music than at the time I was rooting for the King's speech by Alexander Desplat. Uh, if it were happening today, I probably would have been review- rooting for how to train your dragon by John Powell. But I said, this is impossible. And so I bought both of the scores to the King's speech and to the social network. And I listened to them back to back. And I walked away and I was so surprised because I enjoyed the social network score more. I I just couldn't believe it because this score is full of this insane energy that matches each scene the songs are featured in perfectly. I was listening on my drive home just now and I was able to place each track within the scene that it appears uh, so extremely well. And I can do that with other film scores. That's not a new concept, but it just is a testament to how well these composers have picked music and composed music that fit the tone of the film so well. And right off the bat, you have hand covers bruise, which you mentioned earlier, which is sort of the main theme of the movie, the light piano over the, the anxious drone, however you want to refer to it as the first time we hear that is when Mark is walking across campus by himself after having been dumped and you hear the hurt. And even that title hand covers bruise. I think that is a perfect example of Mark as presented in this film as this character who does get hurt, does have feelings, but he he sort of places a hand over it, pretends it's not there, and then retaliates in the way he knows how. And so the the music in this movie, there, there's there's tracks like In Motion, and that that's the one that first one that comes to mind because it was early on the soundtrack. But every single track in this film score blew me away because it's so different than anything I heard before, but it also I mean, Facebook was different than anything that had ever done before. So it it really fits what is happening in the film so well. Yeah, it's fantastic. And it set off uh, Reznor and Ross on this uh, kind of film scoring path that I was disappointed by their Dragon Tattoo score a bit. It was just a bit samey, not not too dynamic, very icy, which I guess was fitting. Um, but I really like their Gone Girl score in that kind of the first half of it is almost satirical and saccharine to kind of make fun of the kind of light and airy romance that is alluded to in the film but it is ultimately is a facade which is when the music then takes a dark turn and gets really uh, fantastic yeah this is i i think their best work as a duo so far yeah i, I like the girl with the dragon tattoo score but it's also like three hours of music for ten dollars on itunes um yeah. and the focus of that score is very much atmosphere which is appropriate considering the content of the film you don't want themes so much as just the tone to be unsettling for sure and they succeed there i haven't listened to gone girl score as much but i'm going to have to go back and check it out with you saying what you did about it because i, I think that's really interesting that it it does have that contrast in the two halves but again Social Network, I think, is their best, and it is amazing to me how well it works in the film. Because you're right, a a more traditional score, I do not think, would work for this. An an orchestral score would not work. And the most classical we get is the the adaptation of In the Hall of the Mountain King during the race later in the film. And even that is a very technical spin, as in, like, uh, electronics spin. Yeah, distorted. Yeah, exactly. 
so yeah, I mean, there's not much I think else that can be said about the the score except that it really is just fantastic. Now, what about takeaways or relevance or however you want to put it? What what do you take away from this film at the end of the day? I mean, I still and and I felt this way at the time. I still feel like it is one of, if not the defining film of the early 21st century. It is a brave new world. It's no longer a world where men and women are working their way up the food chain and then, you know, becoming CEOs and making decisions. This is kids who are creating groundbreaking and revolutionary technology and are whisked away and whipped up into this massive thing that is bigger than any of them individually. And they are forced to play adult when at heart they're still growing up. And there's this naivete that runs throughout the film. I mean, just the the pure juxtaposition of, of watching these depositions where you see like older men and women are the lawyers and um, the mediators and, and the ones who are um, kind of servicing the deposition. But the main people that it's about are kids. They're these fresh faced young people. And I think that's, it's just really fascinating. The And, you know, Again, obviously, it's dealing with themes that are as old as Shakespeare or going back to just classical storytelling of a rise to power, a fall from grace, uh, betrayals, backstabbings, loss of friendship, and all told in this really um, impeccably crafted narrative that's that's tightly structured and engaging and dynamic and compelling, but emotionally affecting and emotionally involving. Again... This was announced as the the Facebook movie, and everyone was like, "Why would you make a movie about Facebook? It's not about Facebook, really. You and it's not even really about Mark Zuckerberg. Sure, like the film is. I think that the film is true and accurate in spirit to who Mark was and who Eduardo was, and and what these characters were doing to each other. But Fincher and Sorkin knew better than to simply just try and make a really straight biopic or a really straight like. Well, here's exactly what happened and is exactly how it happened. They're creating characters and they're creating arcs and they're um, having these arcs land in satisfying and interesting and complex manners. And to do that, you have to have a, a deep understanding of character. So you look at the film, you look at Mark Zuckerberg, it rings true maybe to who Zuckerberg is and what he did. But ultimately, Jesse Eisberg is playing the character Mark Zuckerberg. I, I think it says so much more t- about a filmmaker and about a screenwriter to take a real life story and adapt it to teach real life lessons because it could have just been a textbook. It could have been, this is exactly what happened here, 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 and here. And they could have gotten Zuckerberg and Saverin themselves more involved in the accuracy as it were, but that, that wasn't what was important about the movie. As you said, it's about the characters and it's about the lessons and about the, the real life applications uh, pun not intended of the takeaways here the 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 real world rise and fall like you're all the things you're saying the rise and fall of friendships the the rise and fall of power how people treat each other that is the takeaway of the movie not necessarily the the take the the origin of facebook itself um, and it also has a lot to say about like viral content this was an early example of viral content on the internet because it was still young uh, at the very beginning of the movie, when Mark has sat and created face mash drunkenly, 
Eduardo asks him, who are you going to send it to? And he says, just a few people. But the question is, who are they going to send it to? And from there, they get 22,000 hits in four hours. So th there, there was that example of viral content. There was the sort of little bighorn example that they give of how they, they got Facebook to Baylor by uh, getting the surrounding schools involved first. And then their friends sort of took over that way. So early examples of viral content. I think one of the predominant like messages of the movie is that there are consequences to our actions, right? Erica breaking up with Mark at the very outset has a consequence. Whether that consequence was a creation of Facebook, ultimately, maybe, maybe not. Mark creating face mash. Mark snubbing the Winklevi. Eduardo freezing the account. Mark diluting Edward's share. Sean partying with these underage people and with cocaine and drugs and all that kind of stuff. Everything that each character does in this movie Every character, whether it's a good guy, bad guy, anti-hero, has something happen to them as a consequence of their actions. And I think that's fascinating, watching how these characters respond to these situations they're put in. Sure. And I think another aspect of the movie that I find interesting, and, and it's a line of dialogue that I, I think about a lot, is the, the notion of invention and ownership of an idea. And, you know, Mark says, just because a guy invented a table doesn't mean he owns tables like you can make one kind of table another kind of table mark made the best version so did he do shady dealings with the winklevoss twins absolutely like he he kind of took the root of their idea but who's to say they were they would ever have been talented enough or smart enough to make it into what zuckerberg turned facebook into right and other ambiguous sort of takeaways there there was whether or not Mark purposefully cheated Eduardo out of the business. Yeah. Was it more Mark? Was it more Sean? Was it a little bit of both? Surely Sean sort of convinced Mark or, or was it rotten luck on both accounts? Did the Winkle eye and did Eduardo just have sort of a bad luck run and things turned against them, whether it was entirely Mark's fault or not? I think that's a really interesting thing to consider whether again, whether the Winkle eye owned the idea of Facebook, whether, these things that, that didn't exist before Facebook or before the internet even, everything was person to person and in print and a lot slower. And now they've put the entire social existence online. And so everything changes. Yeah. And I think that's another fascinating thing that the movie explores. Any other sort of themes or takeaways? Uh, Not specifically, no. I mean, uh, the big thing about kind of big picture the big thing about the social network that i always point to and and it has cropped up it is probably in my top 10 films of all time one of the few 21st century movies to like be under consideration for that but i think it is this perfect marriage of director and screenwriter these two singular talents aaron sorkin who had previously you know written a few good men created the west wing one of the best tv shows of all time like he was a, a voice and a talent unto it unto himself and david fincher who he was a voice and a talent unto himself very meticulous you know a david fincher film when you see it and i feel like these two forces coming together they brought out the best in each other while also beating down the worst sorkin can have a tendency to get a bit too romantic a bit too old-fashioned and initially actually when this project was set up when he wrote the script it was at sony and he wanted to direct it and they said well let's go to our first choice director david fincher if he says no you will direct it and he said that's totally fine with me and fincher said yes 
and obviously Fincher directed it. But Sorkin had much more classical ideas for it. He had a pop song that he wanted to play over the opening scene. Um, very different. He would have made a very different movie, whereas Fincher sometimes gets bogged down in kind of the darkness, and he's been accused of not putting too much heart into his films, although I think Curious Case of Benjamin Button is, is an extremely emotional film. But I think the romanticism of Sorkin's script beats that down a bit, and so these two forces coming together, I think, just kind of create the perfect blend. Of all the awards that they were nominated for at the Academy Awards that year, they did walk away with Best Adapted Screenplay, which showcases Sorkin's talent, Best Original Score, which showcased Reznor and Ross, and then the Film Editing, which, again, is just a an extension of Fincher's prowess when it comes to filmmaking. And so I think that the, the best parts of this movie definitely were celebrated in the correct ways and uh, are the real takeaways at the end of the day. Yeah, that was a crushing award season for me because I just felt like the King's speech was so sappy and traditional and fleeting, ultimately. And The Social Network was this kind of rousing, groundbreaking piece of work. And, you know, Fincher deserved Best Director, deserved Best Picture, and ultimately didn't win those. But, you know, uh, we're now seven years on. No one's really talking about the King's speech, but people are constantly talking about The Social Network. Yeah, as much as I do enjoy The King's Speech, I think Social Network is definitely, if I had to pick a movie from that year that would stick around, this would definitely be uh, ahead of The King's Speech, I think. Yeah. So, uh, cool. Any other final thoughts, or does that pretty much sum it up? Pretty much sums it up. I love The Social Network, clearly. <laughs> Me too, and I'm so, so glad that you picked it, because I was actually thinking, I think even just last week, how much I wanted to talk about this movie, and how I, how much I wanted to rewatch it as well. Yeah. So, thank you for that. <laughs> sure. And I guess that is the end of the official 40th episode of Cinescope. Thank you so much for joining me, Adam. Yeah, thanks for having me. Contact for the show. You can find us at facebook.com slash Cinescope podcast and at Cinescope pod on Twitter. Please remember to rate, review, and subscribe on iTunes. And that being said, let's go ahead and just briefly talk about this giveaway that we're starting. So this is going to run all the way up to the episode 52 release, which should be at the end of July. So nearly three months at this point. And this time there will be three winners. One person will win, or two people rather, will win a choice of any movie we talked about on the show up through episode 52 in any format you prefer. So DVD, Blu-ray, digital, whatever you want. And the grand prize winner will win a choice of any two movies we've talked about in the format that they prefer. So all you have to do to enter is leave a review on iTunes. And if you've already done that, or if you want a bonus entry, or if you don't use iTunes, then go to Twitter or Facebook and share the show and tag us so we actually see it. So at Cinescope Pod or the Cinescope Podcast Facebook page. And again, you have until episode 52 to enter and that's when we will announce it. So I hope you go to iTunes, help us out, leave a rating, leave a review and let us know how we're doing because that's a, that's the best way to help the show grow. So also there's the email the Cinescope podcast at gmail.com. If you're interested in co-hosting, if you have a movie that you love, like the social network, then definitely contact and let me know so I can fit you in. So Adam, where can people find you online? Uh, you can find me on Twitter at, at Adam Chitwood and then writing over at collider.com. Awesome. And go check out the collider podcast as well. It, what I like about the collider podcast is that you both clearly know a lot about the sort of filmmaking process, the, the the box office returns and the the whole aspect the, all everything circling filmmaking and so listening to your show is very much 
sort of behind the scenes kind of feeling and a little bit more knowledge than just a sort of casual movie fan might have. And so I would definitely recommend the Collider podcast for people who like a little bit extra as far as diving into movies goes. Thanks. I appreciate that. We try to bring a, a degree of expertise. We've both been doing this for so long. And then we also kind of re- review new releases over there. Although you can probably hear us get pretty weary. Uh, we try to kind of think critically about the the films that we're talking about, and but also kind of highlight and champion some of the smaller films or, or films that aren't getting highlighted enough. Very cool. So make sure to go check that out. And hey, while you're in iTunes, leave them a review and rating as well, because all podcasters want that for their show. So be a big help. The best place to find me on Twitter is at chadadada, that is C-H-A-D-A-D-A-D-A, and on facebook.com slash chad.hopkins. And all the show notes, all the contact information can always be found at thecinescopepodcast.com. And that is all for this week. Thank you so much, Adam. It's been a blast having you on the show and talking about one of my favorite movies. Sure, yeah, thanks for having me on. Uh, I enjoyed it as well. As I said, this is one of my favorite movies too. Awesome. Thank you, everyone, for listening to episode 40. I'm Chad Hopkins. This was Cinescope, and we'll be back next week with episode 41. Have fun and celebrate movies. Movies.